Welcome to the Radical Reverend Show. I'm your host, as always, Sherry DeNovo. Uh, great to have you here, whether you're listening on CIUT or on podcasts. Please, as always, I always respond. Let me know what you think. And today, um, we've got two different sections of the show, which is fun. The second half, we're going to be talking to Maggie's uh, folk about uh, sex trade, of course, uh, during the pandemic. It goes on still, workers, you know, um, and also police response to them, um, which is really discouraging. And we're going to talk about that. Uh, first half of the show, I'm delighted to have back on. Uh, we've got David Slavic, who uh, was an adjunct law professor at Elon University, also uh, a think tank staffer and a political consultant from D.C., and assistant editor at McLean's and all-round media persona, uh, Andre Demise, who is going to be with us as well. And we're talking, of course, what else are we talking about right now, uh, politically, but uh, what's happening in the States and, and, you know, of course, the ramifications of it here across the border. So let's dig right in. Andre, the inauguration, what were you thinking? I wasn't thinking. You know why? Because I slept through it. Did you? <laughs> I deliberately went to bed at around five o'clock the the, uh, the morning of, didn't sleep the previous night, and I intended to sleep through the entire thing, and I got very close to accomplishing that, but then I woke up to find that that uh, a bunch of white liberal feminists were really angry that Bernie Sanders had the nerve and audacity to sit in a coat with a pair of mittens on in the middle of January. I'm not really sure what was going on there. <laughs> And David, I don't know. impressions. You know, I, I think one of the things that I I, I learned right off the bat, I, I think this is a this is actually one of the problems with with American people uh, left of center is that um, they don't, don't really understand the material realities of life. Right? We're talking about how a man is sitting. Is he sitting in a jacket? Is he wearing mittens? Right? The fact is that no one below the border actually knows how to dress properly in winter, unless they're in Minnesota or in Idaho or in Montana. Right? Everybody's pretending that they don't have the material conditions that are required to live, right? It's so indicative in that sort of dialogue around Bernie Sanders and his jacket. And I think that what you saw is like style over substance, right? Yeah, I mean, I think the memes of Bernie Sanders is kind of like the vengeance of the left on the entire <laughs> proceedings. I mean, I think yeah. the fact that the, the superstar coming out of the inauguration is this old guy sitting there with a coat and mittens on, um, memed into every conceivable <laughs> surroundings yeah. of the universe is really kind of cool, actually. But yeah. hey, that's me. Let's go back a bit before the inauguration, of course was the attempted coup, Andre. Any surprises there for you? And uh, what do you think happened to all those people? And what's going to happen next with them all? It actually surprises me that people were calling it an attempted coup. Uh, so <laughs> here's here's what, here's, um, how am I going to thread this needle? So it, it actually strikes me, and this is not to you, Sherry, this is just like to the, to the general discourse. It strikes me as a bit hysterical, and I think serving a particular purpose uh, when people say that this was, you know, a, an attempted coup on the United States to undermine democracy, to uh, to to uh, what do they say? Like violate the sacred temple, like the sacred and holy temple of American democracy, or whatever kind of like veneration they're trying to heap on like the most filthy and like venal, just absolutely disgusting pit of wretched despair that is Capitol Hill. Um, 
<laughs> in order for a coup to succeed, like this isn't this isn't some like old timey peasants rebellion in the Middle Ages, right? Like this yeah. this is like modern times. And in order for a coup to be successful, you have to have the like you have to have the uh, you know the heads of the police state apparatus on your side. You have to have an idea about like who you're going to install. Like there has to be some sort of like replacement plan in place. But the most important thing, obviously, is that you need the apparatus of the police state. And Secretary of Defense Jim Mattis pretty much made it clear that Donald Trump had better like pack his shit and get going um, on the 20th of January. So if the military isn't behind Donald Trump in this attempt, or not even Donald Trump, but like, you know, the uh, the Chud Brigade that invaded Capitol Hill, if the military and the police aren't behind them, then there is no coup. It, it was just a bunch of angry, disaffected, uh, probably generally like middle-class white people LARPing as revolutionaries and just like storming what was to them the Bastille Palace. Uh, but I, I just don't see a coup there. Like in terms of like history, there it, it resembles nothing like a coup. Yeah. It was more like Occupy Applebee's. <laughs> <laughs> to me, in many ways, it was like Occupy Applebee's. We, I think I think what you're seeing on the, on the, the right is an extension of what we call a live action role play. You've seen people think because they want lower taxes and because they don't want immigrants in the neighborhood that they're defending freedom, right? This is what people have told themselves. This is what the media has told them. Their bad behaviors are essentially some sort of political statement and that political statement is revolutionary. When really they're just revanchist, uh, you know, sort of small business owners, people with yachts, you know, people who have uh, an extra ski do and, and maybe are, are been divorced once or twice, right? You know, these are these those types of dads who are talking about who, you know, five years ago would have been talking about their rights as in child custody court and how they're being being ruined by the Democrats, right? Now, now they're storming Capitol Hill. This lifestyle brand, which is conservatism and which is politics in the United States in general, uh, I would say in a large part, you're seeing that, that come to a fruition in, in one of the most like like veto and and also like just totally flaccid ways i mean if this if this was uh you know if this was a revolution it needed some viagra and i i think that's kind of a, a, an extension of what the trump sort of movement was it was a bunch of guys pretending to be tough guys who really didn't have any role or goals i get it and absolutely ring with it but I'll just push back a little bit in the sense that if you're getting beaten up by one of them, if you're getting targeted <laughs> by one of them, and there's millions and millions of them that voted for Trump. Um, and I'm not alone in, in hearing from people who are saying, you know, like this, this in fact was, you know, a false flag and it really was Antifa on the left that were, <laughs> you know, like, I mean, I, yeah. but, so there's <laughs> a whole lot of weirdness happening out there. And um, it seems to have gone quiet, but, have they really gone home, Andre? Yeah, re no, I'm just, I find that really funny because that lady, uh, Ashley Babbitt, who got like clapped in the neck by a secret service agent, you know, imagine, imagine like getting shot in the neck, trying to climb through a window only for the people that you thought you supported to turn around and call you oh. Antifa. That's yes. <laughs> Yeah, I, uh, I I can't even lie. Like I I I I went into my basement and smoked up some loud over that one. That was really good. <laughs> I I you know it was funny to me. I, I one of the things that I think is really interesting. I, I think I think these people will not go away. But I also think a lot of these people are are sore winners who became sore losers. And also, you know, and overall. They, they don't want to be identifying with a losing cause, right? I think these are the types of people who want to be, that Trump made them feel like they were on the right side of history for some time. They, they rode that high that, you know, their, 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 uh, their crack politics were going away. 
and they needed a fix, so one last fix. I think these, some of these people will go away. I think the right wing that's built under Trump and has been empowered under Trump will not go away. So I think you will see some more lone uh, actors, you know, sort of Timothy McVeigh types, during like you see all the time during Democratic administrations. I mean, if you look at, you know, the, from from the Oklahoma City bombing to Ruby Ridge, all these things happen sort of on Democratic watches. And this, this is what happens continually in a cyclical way. But I do think that that sort of mass movement of Trumpers where where you're seeing you know the bumper stickers and stuff, you're going to see those bumper stickers get scraped off because people are going to get back into you know just riding their skidoos and and worrying about you know they're they're not tipping enough at, at a small at, when they go to a restaurant. Andre, let's get back to you. So Biden, Biden's there. The mainstream media can't say enough wonderful things about him, ex- except for Keystone. We'll get to that later. Talk to us about Biden. Uh, you know, I find the. Um idea of Biden being like a moderate Democrat and a compromiser and negotiator to be supremely hilarious because, you know, for the most of, for the most of his career as a senator, he was bought and sold by the financial industry. He was friends with segregationists and he like made a point of saying that he was a friend of segregationists because he had to be able to like, I don't know, I don't know exactly what aisle he was reaching across, but he was reaching across some aisle or another. Um, that he, you know, he was he was almost entirely like captured uh, by the financial industry uh, to the point where like there was a conspiracy theory that a fellow who had uh, accused or said that he had had sexual relations with Barack Obama prior to his uh, career as a politician. Uh, apparently, the guy lived in the state of Delaware, and and there was a conspiracy theory going around that um, Biden made him disappear because of all his connections in the financial industry in Delaware. That all being said, like. He's not, he's never been a, um, like in his uh, previous presidential runs, he's never come across as a moderate or progressive or anything to that effect. (laughs) He was like two steps away from being a Republican in name only. And I think a lot of the uh, cachet and the credibility that he's developed was handed over from his time during the Obama administration. And that's interesting because Barack Obama hadn't had a whole lot of cachet or um, uh, credibility with the black community uh, until he won the Iowa caucus in 2008. And uh, after then winning the uh, the North Carolina primary. So a lot of what Joe Biden is coasting on right now is essentially clout uh, from simply keeping his head down and not sabotaging his uh, his, yeah. his boss for uh, for eight years. We're, what's this going to look like going yeah. forward? Well, having canceled the Keystone XL pipeline, a lot of people are celebrating that as some sort of like a victory for climate policy. But what we're seeing is just like, it's almost like watching a bunch of switches be flipped off in a room when somebody leaves and then watching them be flipped back on again. So the Trump administration comes in and, you know, they end uh, the ability for trans people to serve in the military. You know, they, uh, they shut down abortion clinics overseas and, and forbid, uh, you know, abortion from being talked about during sex ed. And then they also, you know, uh, go full throttle with the Keystone XL pipeline and, you know, several other pipeline projects, they open up drilling in Anwar and yada, yada, yada. But when the Democrats come in, they just like do the exact opposite. And then people want to fit that and celebrate that as some kind of victory for whatever progressive purpose. So when they say, for example, that this puts America back on climate targets or the Paris climate targets. Yeah, but the Paris climate targets are not going to save us. Like, yeah, Canada is not going to hit the Canada is not going to hit the Paris climate targets for another couple of hundred years. So what difference does it make? So being able to count these things as victories is completely hollow when we've just simply gone back to what the Obama administration's priorities were. And those priorities themselves were not going to carry us out of this crisis. This, this is what bothers yeah. me. OK, David. 
so I, you know, just to get back to the the Trans Mountain, uh, the Trans Canada pipeline, I think if if tar sands were profitable, that would go through. That's that's a simple fact. I think that the Biden administration is very lucky in that they get to cancel an unprofitable, uh, you know, uh, type of of a project. It makes them look good. It's a great way to start, right? It makes people happy. But the fact is, if I think that if those tar sands were profitable, that would go through. And I think that's kind of the calculation you're going to see across uh, this sort of Biden administration. I think there's some good things that are going to happen that are very important. You know, I think trans people in the military, very important. I think some of the protections you're going to see for work workers, very important. I think you're seeing some protections for federal employees that are already very important. Those things are very good. And I think that's, you know, like you're going to get sort of to a baseline of acceptability. But that baseline is still going to be at the Barack Obama level, which I think fell far short of the, of the potential of that administration. And I think that what we need to do if people, as people on the left is to constantly remind people of who Joe Biden is and who he will be if we do not hold his hand the entire way. Someone on our left, left or leftist panel uh, the other week said that Trump was Obama's monster, that he was, you know, created out of the Obama years. And stand back if you think that was bad, because what will Biden's monster look like? Um, So the Keystone XL, I just want to interject here about the Canadian media on this. It makes me completely crazy. I can't believe the way that the reaction, I mean, got it, you know, Trudeau's no green prime minister. Kenny's nuts, got it. But at the end of the day, I mean, come on now, aren't we supposed to be not building pipelines? And not to mention the indigenous aspect of all this, of course, we're talking about land that doesn't belong to us, both here and uh, south of the border. But, you know, what's with the media? Incredible lobbying and marketing by the oil industry is what I'm saying, and some name changing too. I think one of the things that I'm uh, consistently surprised by is the the Canadian media's um, sort of split persona and in some ways they like to say we're canada we're better we're doing it better we're better than those people down below and you know what we're we're you know we care about the environment etc cetera, etc cetera. and then you see this sort of turnaround this about phase where after a year and i think andre had pointed to this prior to the show is that you know we had been really pushed. Everybody was to the point, you know, we we're in Queens Park and, you know, and rallying and there's thousands and thousands of people there. This is a pre-COVID, of course. COVID comes, suddenly climate change is on the back burner again and oil is king. A year ago, it, this would have been unfathomable. And here we are. And it's really interesting how COVID has let the rest of the world's baddies off the hook. You see Facebook, you see all these companies doing bad things constantly and getting worse. And yet because of COVID, it's like we have something else to focus on and we don't focus on those things that we actually made progress on a year ago. Let's talk about what's going to happen now politically in the States. Do you think, Andre, do you think Trump is actually going to start the Patriot Party? Is there going to be uh, another right wing spinoff from this? I, 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 that's, that's actually pretty interesting. I floated that possibility a couple of days ago. And, uh, you know, people were responding, saying that that's one of the reasons why Mitch McConnell has been coy about whether he might actually impeach Trump. And I can see like the, the, the machinations, like how that would work. So if Donald Trump actually does start a, uh, a second right wing party, uh, the, uh, the Patriot Party, that ends up peeling off votes uh, from Republicans running in uh, state and federal congressional races which then also means that uh, the uh, the Republican Party itself could face, you know, Democratic dominance for 
however far into the foreseeable future. Now, the problem with that, or the, the easy fix for that, is simply to impeach Donald Trump even after he's left office and, and possibly prosecute him. If you prosecute him, then he cannot be the leader of this movement. He, he can't be the figurehead. Except that Steve Bannon still exists. You know, Roger Stone still exists. Uh, my, um, Flynn still exists. Gorkas still exists. Like all of these people that could be, you know, the uh, the figureheads of this party, um, or alone or all together, like Voltron, uh, could that could conceivably make it viable. Um, the opportunity, though, uh, there's actually an opportunity on the left that this does proceed, because if the Republicans are uh, fractured and they're uh, they're they're far right and reactionary uh, section goes along with the Patriot Party, then the Democrats no longer have the ability to threaten their the left of their party with, well, if you don't vote for us, then you're just going to have a Republican. So what do you want? Would you rather have the corporatists or would you rather have the fascists? I know what I would like to go with, but they can't hold that threat over the head of the left anymore with a splintered right. So then there's a possibility of actually having like a labor party of some sort, you know, God only hope. Uh, a, a party that operates under the auspices of socialism. Actually, that's exactly what I tweeted out when I first heard this was that maybe this is an opportunity for an American Labour Party. David, what do you think? I, I, I would love that. I would love that. And I, Andre, we've had this discussion over beers many times. Uh, I, I just think because of the, the, the way election laws and ballot access works, that I think both a right splitter party and a left splitter party would be very rare um i think brand loyalty is 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 very is is you know there's a heavy brand loyalty i think that this uprising actually is is actually a a stain on on the the trump brand in a way that i think it's actually making mainstream republicans say hey i'm a a racist bigot but you know i'm not i'm not rude you know it's i mean that kind of that kind of uh yeah um sort of uh outside of the bounds thinking i'm seeing at least from my my uh republican relatives that they're they're saying well you know i i wouldn't go that far and i i think that you're going to see that pop up but the infrastructure is there republicans know how to raise money in ways that i don't think the trump administration the trump team could and uh because of that i don't see that happening now for a left party in the states i think that you're going to see that at the at the municipal level uh i think you're going to see it as they say mao went to the cantons but you know i i think that you could see that at the municipal level you could see that in the cities you could see a working families you know uh a line in new york and things like that but i i think on the whole i, I don't think you're going to see a dominant socialist party come out of the states for at least 30 years Yikes, we may not have those 30 years, David. If you've just tuned in, you're listening to The Radical Reverend Show, um, whether on radio or on podcast, I'm speaking here to uh, David Slavik, a think tank staffer, political consultant from DC, law professor. I'm speaking also to media star and assistant editor at McLean's, Andre Demise, and of course, a yours truly here, Sherry DeNovo. We're talking things American with, you know, like a side note about Canada too. We can't, of course, not talk about the pandemic. Andre, pandemic politics in the States versus Canada. Uh, pandemic politics in the States and Canada don't really have a heck of a lot of daylight, except that we get the warm cuddlies uh, from our uh, heads of government. While in the United States, they either have like a, uh, just a seething cold hatred or just like absolutely unabashed and eternal horniness, right? Like they're actually like calling themselves Cuomo sexuals. Same guy, by the way, that was like making prisoners produce hand sanitizer 
uh, for no wages uh, they, and, and was uh, cutting uh, hospital staff and was closing down hospitals in the middle of a pandemic and people are calling themselves homosexuals, even though this is like the epicenter of the, uh, the American COVID outbreak. While in Canada, we, you know, we, we get the warm fuzzies from people like Doug Ford, who it turns out, according to a story that came out in the Toronto Star, uh, was advised to take very serious and stringent measures where it comes to uh, making schools safe for students to be in them again, i.e. Uh, ventilation, uh, uh, personal protective equipment, uh, smaller class sizes, et cetera. And uh, apparently the Ford government, uh, Stephen Lecce, uh, possibly the premier himself, looked at it and said, no, no, I don't think we'll do that. We'll just go with something that's a little bit like less stringent and cross our fingers and hope for the best. And it turns out to be an abysmal disaster. You know, like schools in my old neighborhood where I grew up, like around Etobicoke, uh, either have like been hit with outbreaks or just closed down altogether. So personally, it disgusts me in all aspects that, are, you know, when our uh, elected leaders had the opportunity to mitigate this crisis through sound policy, they just decided to go with whatever their donors wanted instead. And now look where we are. We're all under house arrest. We're locked indoors and we're just mad at each other. So, yeah. David, pandemic politics, north and south. I think it's really interesting because even within the, in Canada, we have uh, different pandemic politics across, you know, across the, the different provinces. I, I think in Ontario, you've seen, you know, neoliberalism gone, gone, gone awry. Um, yeah, can, Toronto, when I left Toronto in the summer, uh, there, you know, things were getting under control. There was some sort of reasonable uh, sort of system. There was hero pay for some of the essential workers. But that stuff's all going away. And, and you saw, uh, you know, as soon as it got a little better, they said, OK, we can go back to normal. And here in, in, in uh, Newfoundland, we have a much different situation where we, we've actually gotten rid of the flu because of, of the of compliance with with the, uh, you know, different rules. But below the border, I think you're also you're, you're seeing I think Cuomo and Ford are kind of similar in this way in that they both got a lot of credit for doing almost nothing or being terrible. And what I don't understand, and I and I just I it's very hard for me to understand is that why people who uh, who disliked these people before the pandemic suddenly ran to daddy. They looked at these, these sort of authoritative figures and the very bare minimum they were doing and said, you know what, that's really powerful. And it's very strange to me because without COVID, I think Doug, Ford would have been gone long gone. And now that he's doing even worse with COVID, and I think uh, Andre, you had said this on Twitter the other day, is that in a just world, Doug Ford would have been ran out of politics and the Ford name would be burned to the ground. I do not know what happened in, in Ontario that made him even remotely popular or the conservatives think that he should stick with him. Yeah, I mean, his, his polling numbers are falling, but there's still enough to give him another majority, and that's for sure. Andre, you mentioned schools, which, of course, were a disaster. I mean, one of the things that I've noticed is just how ignored those folk in the scientific community have been both sides of the border. I mean, their voices have been pretty strong, pretty loud, pretty factual for almost since the pandemic started, and they've been listened to not much, if at all, by anybody. Before we go back to the States again, long-term crime, as I call it. Here we have a for-profit system where we're killing off uh, seniors. These homes are unbelievably horrific. Um, most of our deaths come from them. In some instances, you know, up to 80% of all the COVID deaths are from long-term care. You've got $171 million being paid out to shareholders. The army came in, said it was awful, which everybody knew already. 
left and nothing has changed. There's incredible frustration, I know, because I've been very active on this file um, as to what next? Like they're just not listening and people are still dying. So I'm going to ask you as both uh, as both political folk in terms of organization, what do we do? Andre? Uh, this, uh, well, what there's, I have like a, a critique and a suggestion and that's that uh, the, the critique part is if there was anything resembling a competent and remotely unified left in this province or in this country, then uh, the Ford brand and the Kenny brand would be so radioactive that three, four, five generations in, they would never be able to go anywhere near politics. Like that, the fact that you know scientific consensus ends up getting through filtered through political policy, and this is the end result that we have, is an absolute farce. And the fact that Doug Ford hasn't been not only you know drummed out of his caucus, removed out, you know, removed from the party leader, possibly even brought up on charges, is also obscene in, in my opinion. The fact that the party tried to uh, ram through legislation to, uh, and this was under the auspices of COVID relief, that they're they're going to shield these long-term care facilities from lawsuits by trying to specify that if they acted in quote-unquote good faith, who knows what that means? If they acted in good faith, then you wouldn't be able to sue the nursing home that gave your grandmother bed sores, uh, you know, dehydrated her for a day possibly two, and then she ends up dying alone of COVID symptoms. The, the fact that, you know, well, I'm not going to name the companies on your show, but the fact that these companies can not only get away with that, but the government actually enable, like helps them uh, avoid the possibility of a lawsuit, to me is itself criminal. And I obviously blame the, the current conservative party government for having absolutely no morals, uh, for Doug Ford, for being an absolutely venal and cowardly figure. But then there's also the left, which has not mounted a strong enough offense. Uh, you know, it's not to say that like Andrew Horvath, for example, hasn't talked about this, but, you know, we, we need more than that. We need more than talking that, you know, there, there's a need for like agitation, mobilization, an organization that is just simply not happening here. It's, it's mostly, in, it, it's groups of people that are doing the work, not the work of a political party. Um, but then the suggestion here is exactly that that uh, there does need to be mobilization uh, against this government. Uh, there, like, we don't have any sort of a uh, recall legislation, and frankly, I don't normally support it, but for this government to continue operating as per usual, as if it has a moral mandate, uh, with all of this in the background, to me, tells me that there's something fundamentally broken about the way we do politics. So let me throw this out there into the mix, because one of the things that shocks me is that I can't imagine a worse time for workers than now in this province. Right. They're literally getting sick and dying. Where is the talk of a general strike? Where's the talk of any kind of major strike against the system? So, David, I'll throw this to you. And then, Andre, of course, I want you to weigh in, too. The reason it's actually almost impossible to do this is because those COVID funds that were allocated to the Ontario government to help businesses stay closed, to help workers stay afloat, were pushed down the line to help Doug Ford save his fiscal conservative reputation and balance the budget down the line is exactly why you can't mount a defense that you want because people are struggling so much and they're under so much stress that they are actually at a point where they can't do much. It's actually, there's this weird, I don't know how to explain it. It's like, 
it's like it's the the pot is too hot but also like not boiling and i don't really know how how you push that over the edge if you throw salt in the pot or what, what you need to do but there is some sort of uh you know, the austerity dials are, are just squeezed too tight on people, I think, right now. Andre, why not a general strike? Well, in order for a general strike to happen, there I mean, there has to be several, like, uh, support systems into place. Like, you know, the Winnipeg general strike or the UK uh, general strike didn't simply, like, materialize overnight. Uh, it actually began as, like, a, a series of events uh, where, uh, you know, for example, in the UK, it was the uh, the miners that went on strike. And then in sympathy, you know, a whole lot of other unions ended up going on strike. It, it, it metastasized into a general strike. And, and the strike only uh, happened uh, for uh, a few days, like just over a week. And uh, granted, it did uh, force some negotiations. Uh, industries were shut down. Same thing with the general strike. Uh, you you are able to force force the ruling class into a negotiating position, but I think when people say general strike right now, without considering the fact that like you know unions are uh, in in a very weak position, like certainly as weak as they have been in the last hundred years, uh, that we've essentially like atomized our labor to the point where for now all working from home, you don't really have the ability to like you know uh, take your coworkers out for lunch or like go desk to desk or cubicle to cubicle and drop notes and be able to like do the normal like labor organizing work that's required uh, to start a general strike. We are all communicating through Slack and we're communicating through Zoom and we're sitting here like alone and isolated and upset and wondering when we're gonna be let outdoors again. Um, then there's also things like uh, mutual aid, making sure that everybody can like eat and buy groceries. Like if we go on a general strike, then how are people going to be able to pay bills? How do we make yeah. sure that we're not, we're not adding to their, uh, to the, the eventual eviction package that's going to be brought against them? How do we make sure that they're, they're well-fed? How do we make sure that like at the, uh, the, uh, the, the picket lines when streets are being shut down and everything that we're providing security and protection for them, providing PPE. So there's a hell of a lot of logistics that goes into general strike. We can't just say general strike and then it materializes. I mean, I would be in full support of a general strike, uh, but I'm also in full support of helping to create the conditions to cause a general strike. And I think that I think that's required first. Okay, yeah. so to end on a note of hope, because we just have a couple of minutes left, um, I've been talking here and it's been fun with David Slavic and Andre Demise. So what should we be doing? What can we be doing? I'll start with some optimism, and I, and I think Andre can 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 get back to basics uh, with 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 reality. But I think you know, just keep talking to your family. I think I think talking to your family, uh, try to to be as not as try to get rid of the atomization in your life. Talk to your neighbor when you can. Talk to your friends. Reach out. Make those calls. You don't actually have to make them political at all times, but you do have to continue to do them because it's very easy to get holed up into our little digital worlds where we're only talking to the people we, we know we like and that we know we agree with. And I think continuing to have those conversations about your material realities will make change and you can radicalize people over time. Andre. Hope, optimism. <laughs> I don't. I don't do hope and optimism all that well. What I will say. What I will say though is that um, you know, like I'm, I'm part of a few different organizations. So I help uh, with the IWW, International Workers of the World, uh, member of the Communist Party of Canada, member of the uh, the Red Nation, member of the All African People's Revolutionary Party, and the reason that I, you know, work with all of these different organizations is to be able to provide the help and assistance to try and create these conditions. So, 
uh, if I can suggest something to people who are, you know, kind of waiting for conditions to change, they're not. It's just going to continue to get worse. The ruling class is always going to get what it wants. And I think that everybody that actually wants something to change has to join a revolutionary party. You can try and join a political party like the NDP or the liberals and, and try to steer them to where you want to go. But the machinery of the party is such that, that it becomes almost impossible. Like there's an entrenched uh, machinery behind each party. But, uh, you know, com parties like the Communist Party of Canada, International Workers of the World, etc. We have many options uh, that if you want to engage in radical change that is available to you, and you're also not alone, you're not isolated and having these thoughts by yourself, you're able to like work with and talk to people that think uh, just like you do, and, and do want change and can get, get together, um, whether it's on a, you know, on a, on a, on a Zoom call, on a group chat, or whatever, to be able to plan these things. And that's how we've been able to plan, for example, mutual aid out in uh, Pickering where I am. Um, that's how we've been able to like create education groups. Some of the programs we're putting together for this year, um, I'm very excited about, but you can't do that all by yourself. Okay, and on that positive note, and it was a positive note, uh, thank you both for being on the, the Radical Reverend Show. Stay tuned, everybody, because next up, uh, we're going to be talking to Maggie's about sex trade work in uh, the pandemic and not just in the pandemic and how policing uh, coincides with that. So stay tuned. Thanks, David. Thanks, Andre. Thank you. All right. Thank you so much. Welcome back to the Radical Reverend Show. I'm your host, uh, as always, Sherry DeNovo, and I'm delighted to have on today uh, two representatives talking about sex trade work during the pandemic and also policing around sex trade work and the laws around sex trade work and, and you know, what that looks like. And of course, the best people to do that are the folk from Maggie's. So I welcome to the show uh, Jenny Duffy, who's the board chair of Maggie's, and also Danica Edwards, who is working for Biking Lawyer LLP, and she does legal work with them as well. So welcome, both of you, to the Radical Reverend Show. So we're going to start with you, Jenny. There may be people who don't know Maggie's, especially people who are listening to the show that aren't anywhere near Toronto. So maybe just talk about Maggie's, how long it's been around, and what it does. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you, Sherry. So Maggie's Toronto Sex Workers Action Project is Canada's oldest fine for sex worker rights organization. Maggie's has been around since 1986 and was started by sex workers and continues in that fashion. And Maggie's focuses on providing supports, resources and programming, empowering sex workers to do their work safely and to live with dignity. Terrific. And uh, so let's dive right in. What are you hearing from sex trade workers about what it's like to be during COVID? What are the major concerns and what's going on? So there are a lot of major concerns. Um, so firstly, the pandemic has really flipped the sex work industry um, overnight where folks are needing to resort to different types of work within the industry in order to survive. So, for example, folks who used to work in person, say, providing full service sex work, um, doing street based work, stripper massage work, many of those many of those folks are trying to transition to doing their business online in order to supplement their income. Um, 
How, however, transitioning online is not an option that's viable for everyone. You need to have a certain type of space, certain types of resource. And so what we're seeing at Maggie's is that many people are still working in person and needing to put their health on the line in order to feed their families and put groceries on the table. And I've heard rumors, and I'm going to ask Janika about this too, but I've heard rumors that the police have been, in a sense, acting like bylaw enforcement officers around COVID, you know, bylaws. And I, I just seem bizarre to me that they would be doing that. But maybe you can start in, Jenny, and talk about just uh, policing of sex trade work these days. So I'll, I'll begin by talking about the pandemic as Policing of sex work, of course, is nothing new, is a historical issue. And the situation of police officers entrapping sex workers, so posing as clients um, in order to book sex workers and arrest them, um, th that is nothing new. And what we're seeing is another iteration of it during the pandemic where um, officers seem to be using um, COVID-19 uh, restrictions in, in order to, to trick sex workers and, and arrest them. Um, and it's especially alarming during a pandemic where sex workers have been largely left out of receiving emergency funding and supports and folks are in vulnerable positions working in person and receiving a fine or being arrested really exacerbates the issue. It's not going to prevent sex workers from working in person because people are working in person in order to survive during these times. I mean, I guess, you know, call me naive, but I just think it's shocking that the police are trapping sex trade workers still. I mean, that sounds like something that kind of went out decades ago and the fact that it still goes on. I'm going to turn to you, Janika, about that. Like, I think that's shocking to a lot of people that why are they doing that? What is to be gained from that? Um, unfortunately, even, you know, since Bedford, the Bedford decision in 2012, um, the paradigm that sex workers still operate within is very much one that treats them as both victims and criminals. Um, and as, you know, individuals who interfere with with community safety and community peace. And so, uh, yeah, I, it just appears that this is just another iteration of that in COVID, um, you know, targeting full service sex workers. Yes, because their work is in person, but they're an easy target for law enforcement and they always have been. So tell us about the Bedford decision. Most people wouldn't be aware of what that was. What happened there? Yeah, so in the Bedford decision, essentially the Supreme Court ruled that several of the criminal laws that uh, surround the regulation of sex work were unconstitutional because they caused sex work to be more unsafe. Many people don't know that the actual transaction of paying consideration or money for sex is not illegal in Canada and it has not been illegal in Canada but many of the surrounding elements of that act uh, were criminalized. And uh, the Supreme Court essentially said, one part of the decision, they referenced, you know, you can't make it legal to ride a bike and then make it illegal to wear a helmet or to ride a bike safely. And that's essentially what the Bedford decision was about. So then why are the police involved in it at all? 
The laws are very confusing. So sex work is not actually decriminalized in Canada. Sex workers, they're insulated from prosecution, but their work is still illegal. And it's very difficult to do sex work in a way where you are not coming into contact with any of the criminal provisions around it. There's a, a popular misconception that sex work is decriminalized in Canada. So people hear this and they say, oh, you know, there, there's no problem uh, then. But as long as sex work is in the criminal code, it, it is criminalized in Canada. And so are women and men and others getting charged then? Yes. I mean, this is just shocking and astounding to me. And I guess, like, again, I'm just looking from the outside looking in, and I'm sure a lot of our listeners are too. You know, there's this conversation around defunding the police. Um, this seems like an obvious thing police should not be doing. Danica, why do you talk about policing of sex trade work then? Yeah, um, I think this is, of course, another example of why the police need to be defunded. Uh, we are in the middle of a pandemic where millions are without work and struggling financially. And instead of directing funds uh, towards uh, sex workers and thinking, okay, how can we respond to the needs, the unique needs of of sex trade workers right now? Uh, It appears that the government is spending tax dollars to police them instead of just helping them. And this is an example of how we really need to think as a society, what are our priorities with regards to budgets? And would we rather be criminalizing or would we rather implement some sort of equitable redistribution of resources? Yeah, so there's some kind of equality. So now in terms of of sex trade work, I mean, what would sex trade workers want to see in terms of legal reform? Where are most of your membership at, uh, Jenny, in terms of the laws? I mean, would they like to see it decriminalized, legalized? What is the best formula there for safety? Yeah, so the best next step towards enhancing sex workers' lives is decriminalization. So just to be clear, decriminalization is the removal of criminal offenses that target sex workers, clients, and third parties. Um, So this is a framework that moves sex work from a criminal context to a labor one and also requires the implementations of health and safety frameworks and employment standards. Whereas in a legalization context, like in Amsterdam or Nevada, um, sex work is regulated by the government. And there are areas of sex work, um, such as stripping and massage, for example, that are regulated by the government here in Toronto and also in different parts of Ontario. This kind of regulation keeps the government in control of sex work, where there's many other sectors that are are not regulated by the government. And government regulation, as we've seen studies from Amsterdam and Nevada, they actually create an underground of sex work where poor sex workers, migrant sex workers, those living really on on the margins, can't meet the requirements under the type of licensing frameworks and other requirements that are involved in regulation. That's another reason why we advocate for decriminalization. Rather than legalization. That makes some sense to me. If you're just tuning in, you are listening to the Radical Reverend Show. 
And in this segment of the show, we're talking about sex trade work during the pandemic and not only during the pandemic, just to kind of get up to date with the folk at Maggie's and the good work they do and also at Viking Lawyer LLP. So Danica, to go back to the legal side of things, are there any moves to do that, to decriminalize now? Are there any cases before the courts that would make that happen? I'm not aware of that at this time. We at the Biking Lawyer LLP, we focus on personal injury law, and that's really how we got into this relationship with Maggie's. We have a practice focused on targeting state violence and sexual violence, and Maggie's came to us in December and reported that sex workers were being ticketed uh, with COVID-19 tickets. Um, So that's really been our focus. Yeah. And so I want to get back to that. Again, it seems such a waste of police time. What do you say to that, Jenny? I mean, again, ticketed during COVID. I mean, isn't there something better they could be doing or our money could be doing? Yeah, I completely agree. It's incredibly inappropriate. As Danico has said, it's a misuse of tax dollars. When a sex worker is ticketed, it's also very traumatizing. It's not just about the financial ramifications of it. It's the experience of engaging with someone who you think is a client and then they turn out to be a police officer or by law enforcement officer and you don't know what's going to happen in that situation and it's even scarier if you're undocumented or if you're racialized. We already know there's many projects by the police that happen under the guise of human trafficking rescue but what they actually do is they arrest undocumented and migrant workers and call for their deportation. Human trafficking is very much on the radar. It was when I was Mm -hmm. at uh, Queen's Park as well, very much uh, spearheaded by the Conservative Party. For sure, we would hear tales that were frightening, but tell, you know, our listeners a little bit about what that means for someone who is engaged in sex trade work and is not being trafficked. How are those laws being used? Yeah, um, human trafficking laws, they they have a major place in informing the criminal code and the provisions around sex work. And coming from the, the narrative that sex workers are victims and sex work must be eradicated in order for communities to be safer. But this kind of stance, it's not beneficial for genuine human trafficking victims. And it's also really harmful to sex workers because what we're seeing is an increase in law enforcement um, going into their workspaces and targeting them. And unfortunately for marginalized communities, including sex workers, police don't make those communities safer. And we see cases of human trafficking where it's it's the sex workers who are, are arrested, right? And who are facing the major consequences. It's it's not um, the, the other people involved. Yeah, I mean, presumably this is supposed to be about, you know, these international criminal rings, not an undocumented sex worker that just is working. Yeah. Daniqua, have you, have you seen cases like that? Or, you know, is that something that's kind of come across your radar? It hasn't, but that's, once again, that's, probably because just of the space that that we focus on at the Biking Lawyer LLP. We focused more directly on the state targeting people like sex workers or like people who are arrested and uh, police assaults and stuff like that. 
Has there been police assault cases of sex workers? I'm not sure how far the cases go in terms of the police actually receiving consequences or, or being prosecuted. Um, but yes, certainly. Um, police are notorious for assaulting sex workers, including sexual assault, blackmailing them, arresting them, detaining them arbitrarily. This is just a known fact for sex workers in the community that, that police do this. Which is horrific and awful and again speaks to our need for dramatic reform there as well Uh, and so going forward you know pandemic looks like surely sex workers should be the first to be vaccinated in a sense Um, and I'm sure they're not being Um, has there been any move to ask about that not so far but but I do I do agree with you that sex workers should be a priority group to be vaccinated their work is valuable it's it's legitimate they surely shouldn't be left to the end because of any stigma. And, you know, people don't often understand like the work that sex workers do. Not that any work has to be valuable in order for it to be legitimate, but there's many reasons why people see sex workers, especially during times of of a pandemic where um, mental and emotional health was so dire right now. Yeah. It's shocking, really, that sex workers are left out of most equations where health is concerned or, you know, social responsibility are concerned. What is needed in this sector going forward, just from a legal point of view? I mean, what should be happening with policing? Just that they back off entirely? Um, Is there a role for them at all? Or how do you see it? I guess my opinion would be that the role for police in this sector would be to listen to sex workers when they are victims of violence and treat them with dignity and respect. I think they should be treated just as any other victim reporting a crime if that so happens. But in terms of enforcing the employment aspects of sex work, I don't think police have a role in that. I'm just sort of interested in even the bylaw that they're enforcing this, like what, they're supposed to wear masks or like, like what, what are they finding them for? Yeah, so that that's something that we're very curious about. At this point, we haven't had someone come forward as of yet with a ticket to fight. We would assume that it's something along the lines of breaking social distancing guidelines, but we are curious as to when uh, some of these tickets began because Toronto was just recently in a lockdown or just entered on on November 23rd, I believe. And so we are curious to know what was happening before that. I mean, again, it seems a bizarre focus to me. And I think to everybody listening, it's just a bizarre focus, considering that, you know, um, conservative cabinet members have been having big parties (laughs) and breaking the rules, or you can walk along any major street and see people breaking the rules pretty openly, that they would target a vulnerable population who are most at risk just seems bizarre to me. And that's why I wanted to have you on to even talk about it, because it kind of jumped out as just a kind of insane use of our dollars and and another good reason why police get too much money and it should probably go in other directions. Um, so going forward, I mean, what are the things that take up your days, Jenny? Like, what are the major issues you're seeing at Maggie's and how can we help? The major issues right now are sex workers simply trying to survive, especially now during a pandemic where they've lost so much of their income. And the criminalization and the stigma of sex work continues to drive these factors and continues to make sex workers not a priority for the government, even though they're labeled as a vulnerable group 
by the government. You know, really, mm-hmm. sex workers, um, they're, they're made vulnerable, right? And so Maggie's has been doing a lot of mutual aid work. We've handed out over 500, 500 grants to sex workers who are struggling financially during the pandemic. Right now, we do have a Black sex worker support fund where we're administering grants to Black sex workers across the industry. And so Maggie's really needs help from the public in promoting the work that we're doing to help sex workers and also educating themselves on why sex work must be decriminalized and looking at sex work as another job that that deserves rights, that deserves respect and doing their part in advocating to their family members, their neighbors and policymakers on this. Absolutely, and I, just a question came came to mind, and that is, has anybody tried to apply for CERB, or did they try to apply for CERB or any government support? Has anybody done that? I mean, it would be interesting to see. Yeah, I mean, um, CERB was accessible for for those who met the requirements uh, of CERB and who were able to file their taxes. And sex workers are actually able to file their taxes. Maggie's actually puts on um, tax workshops for folks, but still a lot of sex workers, understandably, because they're working in a criminalized sector, either don't know that they can file their taxes, but even more so, they they don't because they don't want to submit their name and their information to the government when, when they're doing something illegal. So for, for many folks, they just couldn't, they couldn't get CERB. And also other, other issues, sex workers who are already receiving um, social support maybe um, ODSP, mm-hmm. who weren't able to receive CERB. And so they receive ODSP, but then they also do sex work to continue to supplement their income. Absolutely, because you certainly can't live on ODSP. I just wanted to hop in uh, in terms of the issue of CERB. CERB and all of the other, you know, pandemic benefits, there was nothing that said, you know, sex workers cannot apply, but sex workers are working in such a criminalized, confusing Uh, legal arena. And it just makes it so that they don't access things that they are even allowed to access. The the government, by criminalizing sex work, creates a disincentive for them to participate in society in regular ways. And it just compounds issues of of poverty and marginalization uh, that sex workers face. Is there any legal move then to decriminalize? Because it sounds like that really needs to happen. Do you know of any? I mean, this would presumably be federal. Is there any MP who's like tabled a bill or is working with you in any way, shape or form to do this? I am not aware of that this time. Jenny, have you heard of any such move on an MP's part? seems like a logical one. I'm not sure about MP. I know there have been a number of attempts at charter challenges over the years, though. Like it's it's certainly something that the sex work community is, is still working towards. 
Well, here's hoping that uh, you actually get there because what's going on now just seems absurd. So thank you so much for the work you both do. And certainly out there in listener land, if you can support it in any way, please do. Maggie's very easy to find. Just Google it and uh, it'll tell you everything you need to know if you want to donate. So I'm delighted to have been speaking to Jenny Duffy, who's the board chair of Maggie's, and Daniqua Edwards, who is at Biking Lawyer LLP and working with this aspect of sex trade workers getting ticketed for absurd reasons. Thanks for coming on the Radical Reverend Show. Take care. Mm-hmm.